Hello, everybody. This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company focused on the ethical, safe, and efficient conduct of clinical trials to address unmet medical needs of patients and their families. We are speaking today with Lisa Carlton, who is the mother of a child with a rare disease, a patient advocate, and a regulatory affairs professional in rare disease drug development. She's a volunteer co-chair of the Working Group on Regulatory Science of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, a leading patient advocacy group that promotes science-driven public policy to increase the likelihood that cures can be developed for rare diseases. She has previously worked at the National Institutes of Health, Otsuka Pharmaceuticals, and is currently Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs at RegenX Bio, a gene therapy-focused biotech company. She has a PhD in pharmaceutics from the University of North Carolina in Chapel, in Chapel Hill. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me this afternoon. You are in an exceptional junction of being a rare disease mom, and you are educated and working in the biotech field. Before we learn more about your work and how this came to be that you work in this field, tell us about your daughter. I understand her diagnosis is a rare disease called tuberous sclerosis. Yes. Um, she has TSC for short, tuberous sclerosis. It's a rare disorder genetic that um, impacts one in 6,000 people in the U.S. Um, she was actually diagnosed in utero. Um, she's a twin, little known fact. Um, and she, um, tuberous sclerosis is a disorder that um, causes benign growth in pretty much any tissue. The tissues that they worry about are the brain, the lung, and the kidney. Um, I said she was diagnosed in utero because they found what are called rhabdomyomas in her heart during a sort of a routine sonogram. Um, and after uh, after she was born, there are also skin manifestations that are very common with tuberous sclerosis. And so we began being followed by genetics and shortly um, afterwards by neurology. And I said, you know, they worry mostly about the the brain and the lung and the kidney because 60% of kids with tuberous sclerosis can manifest as with having seizures. And so we were followed from neurology very early. Um, medically, though, she, she does have, she did have seizures when she was younger. Uh, right around age nine or 10, though, she sort of stopped having them. Um, and then just as she started to go through puberty, we saw a couple breakthrough seizures because she had not been she had not been having them, so we had not been adjusting her meds. And um and then she once we adjusted the meds for all the growing that she had done, um, she's been pretty well maintained um medically. Um I've learned so much from having a child with with uh, a special need, a uh, special medical need. Um, her diagnosis has manifested as um, primarily a speech and language um, disorder. And so that impacts 
some of her ability to access the curriculum in school. Um, but she's great. Um, I've, I've learned a ton from her. And is um, the um, uh, tuberous sclerosis community one that gets together and has advocacy groups and you get to meet other people or is it um, too spread out and that's not the case? Yes. No, we are among the rare diseases. We're probably um, fortunate, more fortunate on the fortunate side because there is a local tuberous sclerosis alliance that's local here in the D.C. area. There's also a specialist, a TSC clinic um, through Children's that we uh, attend. So we've been able to meet other families. The the Alliance hosts every year um, uh, a 5K, so we get to meet other families. It's been an, an absolute blessing to be able to find other people sort of walk in the walk that you're that you're walking. And you um, are a um, professional in clinical research, in uh, in fact, in clinical trials and biotech drug drug development for rare diseases. So how did it happen that you are a professional focused on this? Um, how did that come to be, and what has been your journey? I, it's funny you use the word journey because that's exactly the word I was going to use. Um, I, you know, went to school. I just love to to learn. And I, after I finished my biochem degree, I knew I wanted to do something additional. So I ended up at the University of North Carolina. And I first did a master's in medicinal chemistry, but then I quickly realized I still wasn't ready for the world. So I wanted to continue to um, further my education. And I would say my journey has been really very organic. I've just sort of taken advantage of opportunities as they um, opened up. And once I got my PhD, that also opened up opportunities for postdoctoral study. And after two years in a, in the, in the research lab at NIH, I learned about myself, and that is that I really need an, a, a hard endpoint, um, project-based, and research is very open-ended. And so I thought that going into clinical research was, would, would be a way to marry my, my scientific background, but have it really, quote-unquote, mean something to someone. And so over the years, I've just taken opportunities that get me closer and closer to that meaning um, and was very fortunate to land a position at, um, in an orphan consulting firm, which, um, which allowed me to get um, exposure into Regenix Bio. And I've been there now four and a half years and working in primarily rare. Um, the company's a gene therapy company, um, but the programs that I supported initially were on the rare side of the business. <clears throat> and so um, it was just sort of serendipitous that I ended up having, um, being trained in rare disease and then having a child with uh, a rare disease. Um, there are, there are 7,000... There are 7,000 classified rare diseases, uh, approximately, and it's common for um, advocates to point out that there are only 10% of those 
7,000 diseases that have any FDA-approved treatments, partly because right. it's just so difficult to um, find treatments for rare diseases. And, of course, because they're rare, it's difficult from a regulatory perspective to come up with um, evidence of statistical power uh, of any kind for those diseases. Right. This means right. that all, all, over 6,000 diseases in the rare category have no cure. There's no, not even an FDA-approved treatment. Is, is there a cure for tuberous sclerosis? There, there is not. There, there are treatments that can impact, the, that can slow the, the growth of some of the, the tumors. There are, of course, treatments for the different types of seizures that children may experience, but there's no cure. And are there clinical trials um, looking for better treatments? There are. Um, there, there are quite a few. Um, we have not, as a family, chosen to participate in any of those just yet. Um, but yes, there are. As I said earlier, I think we are on the fortunate side of the rare community because we have been able to sort of connect with uh, doctors who know the disease and with um, the patient alliance. Yes, yes. So that's a that's a positive thing for the community that there are trials. There there are many uh, rare diseases that go either undiagnosed or they're diagnosed and they don't have clinical trials even started. So um, that's mm -hmm. at least a, a, a step in the right direction. Um, right. Yet it still remains difficult. Um, you are the co-chair of um, the working group. It's called the Working Group on Regulatory Science of the Rare Disease Community Congress, which is part of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. Regulatory science is something that is a very pivotal in um, creating a treatment for a rare disease that would pass FDA scrutiny. Can you tell us about that? What What is the issue with regulatory science? Why is that even a term? What's it mean and what does this working group do? Um, sure, yeah, so regulatory science is basically taking all of the wonderful science that people are doing around the world um, and applying um, sort of the standards um, and sort of fitting it into the framework that FDA-regulated products fall into. So um, understanding how to um, how to to follow patients and understand what's important to patients and what is impactful in their disease outcomes and and measuring that in a way that allows um, decisions to be made to evaluate the benefit and the risk of the product because ultimately that the the FDA's sort of charge is to ensure that a product is safe but also effective. And as you know, in the rare disease community, because, because the pa patient populations tend to be small, patients tend to be very different from each other, it's sometimes hard to, to, to study a group of patients in, in, an, in a homogeneous way. And so regulatory science allows us to sort of use these tools to um, to better understand these aspects of the product. Yeah, so it because the FDA is constrained by their own mandate to try to make sure that things are scientifically proven, and because that's hard for rare diseases, 
if there isn't some kind of change, some this focus on this regulatory science, we we will continue having a large number of rare diseases with no treatment. Um, right. Have you uh, experienced, or witnessed, um, heard about uh, increased flexibility from the FDA as it pertains to rare diseases in this regard? Yes, and there there are programs. The FDA has a number of programs whereby they are sort of allowed within the regulatory framework. They are sort of allowed to exercise this flexibility. Um, and there's a lot of interest of late around um, being patient focused in, in the drug development and understanding what's important to patients. Um, and so, yes, that that is certainly something that if you go to uh, conferences and hear people from FDA, these are the, they're struggling with the same issues that we are on the industry side with sort of how to how to capture data from patients when there's so few of them, and so that every little data point um, matters and is, is and is handled in a way that can be useful to uh, you know a patient being born to tomorrow. What would you advise a um, a biotech company that's um, trying to get a rare disease clinical trial started? and they're planning to try to come up with a good treatment or a cure even, what would you advise them on working with patients in um, this regard to improve the chances that regulators are going to approve their drug? I would say listen. I, I, would, I would argue that nobody knows more about a patient's sort of journey um, their experience than their caregiver, than their parent, or the patient themselves. Um, and it, it is often that that sometimes, I mean, I, I've had this experience. I've gone to the doctor and described something that's going on with me, and there's a tendency to sort of, I don't want to say dismiss, but, you know, I'm I'm not a physician, and so I feel like it's a physician sort of mindset to say, okay, well, you know, I know these things, so I'm going to to sort of not listen to what you're describing. But um, I, I would encourage companies and I would encourage companies to to just listen to what the patients are saying, what is important, what what how their disease is progressing, because I think in that listening you're gonna learn a lot. And hopefully be able to apply that and to capture some of that in your clinical trial. I know the recent guidance from the FDA that just came out in June of this year, so just uh, last month, is one of in a series of guidances um, in the FDA's patient-focused drug development program that was mandated um, in legislation some years back that patient advocates played a big role in getting passed, along with um, their partners in um, biotech and pharma. Um, mm -hmm. And in that patient-focused drug development document, it advises companies to basically to fo form um, relationships with the patient community and find out, mm -hmm. as you just mentioned, what's important to them. And I think um, the challenge seems to be how to make it something of regulatory weight rather than just an interview right. of patients in order to check the checkbox. Right. Um, 
is, is there anything, <clears throat> is there something, um, some criteria in that regard that you could um, mention to companies that were tr about to embark on that path? Uh, and it's not a very easy answer. I don't know if there really is one, but um, <laughs> all that effort's being made and tr uh, everybody is trying to figure out how do we, how do we incorporate something besides simple, simply raw statistical power? Yeah, no, it's a tough question. I think we're we're all struggling with that and um, how to how to capture the information in a way that in an objective way that it makes it clear that there is a treatment effect and it's not just variability. Um, so you're right. There's not uh, there's not an easy answer to that. There's certainly not one answer to that. So um, you you have experienced as a family a diagnosis, and yours was relatively early. Uh, I have a son with a rare disease, and he was three years old when he was diagnosed. And the, the time the timing is all over the board. Uh, families experience this in different uh, ways and at different times. Um, mm -hmm. Now that you not only have uh, been the mother of a girl with a rare disease, you have also worked and seen other patients uh, families because of the broader community of advocates and because of your work. Um, what would you mm -hmm. recommend to parents of young children who have just been diagnosed with a scary, progressive, rare disease for which there is no cure? What would you like them to know about the development of cures? I would say, first I would say, take a breath, breathe. Um, you're, you've just entered the long game. Uh, for rare disease and advocacy for your child. Um, drug development, product development, uh, especially in rare, is slow. There's so many little details, and we've just talked about a few of them, trying to capture these, these subtleties between patients. Um, and so, pack some patience. Take a deep breath, pack some patience, um, and, and rest. I would say, because like I said, you're in for a long game of advocacy, a marathon of supporting your child. And it's it, where at all possible, find, uh, connect with, with other patient groups. Maybe there's a similar disease or there's already an established organization for that, for that disease. And, and maybe not. If not, then you have to build, build your, Build your tribe. Um, I don't think I would be um, as sort of mentally healthy as I believe that I am today um, without my tribe, uh, and that includes my work tribe, my friends, my family, um, because you get different support from those different groups in different ways. And so, um, as a parent, really, I know that you will do anything for your child and you you have to be healthy and rested enough to do that because you want to be have it be your best and people will say well i don't i don't know how you do it how do you do it and to that i would say i don't know how i wouldn't do it how is it that i don't do it you you, you do it you you've been given this gift of a special child and um now it's time for you to to 
find your tribe and push ahead. And that sounds all very yeah, cliche, probably, but <laughs> but it is the truth. That's remarkable. Um, um, it, it's it's great advice, and it is remarkable how much energy people derive from finding the folks uh, who are going through the same thing. And uh, it's almost um, a, it's just a, such an energizing experience. And so we've seen people go from feeling isolated and alone with a diagnosis to suddenly um, transforming into a powerhouse of advocacy exactly. and, and change. Exactly. And that goes, that, that starts with just the advocacy to help one's own child. And with any little thing like finding the right doctor or adapting to school, but it can generate um, all kinds of things to help science, uh, to help advocacy. A lot of the group, that, uh, of regulatory science group that you uh, work with um, of the Every Life Foundation, well, the Every Life Foundation sent 900 people to Capitol Hill during Rare Disease Week, and those people were all rare disease uh, family members. So um, there's a lot that happens, and um, I think your perspective that you've shared with us today is also remarkable, the way you are a professional and a mom. So. We are out of time, I'm afraid, but thank you for speaking with us today, Lisa. Thanks for having me, Steve. We have been speaking today with Lisa Carlton, a regulatory affairs professional working in biotech, the co-chair of a working group on regulatory science of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, and the mother of a daughter with a rare disease, tuberous sclerosis. This is Steve Smith of WCG Patient Radio. Special thanks to our executive producer, Lauren Osmore, production team members, Isabel Andresen and Roxana Guilford-Blake, technical director, David Fogel, and head of studio, Amy Hutnick. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>